Good morning. Just as we reflect on those words that we have a God who is willing to send his son Jesus Christ on our behalf, um, it's important for us to remind ourselves that just because we come here week after week after week, that if we're not careful, we can allow words that contain such power and such meaning become dull in our hearts. To where the sacrifice that Christ was willing to make for us to spill his own blood simply becomes lyrics on the screen rather than actual tangible reality that those that have trusted in Christ have experienced. We're here today because of what Christ has done for us. And so when we sing these songs, let us not sink back in our chairs and just become comfortable and forget the fact that what we're singing about actually costs somebody something. And it was a cost that neither you or I could pay in and of ourselves. And so for that matter, what Christ has offered us is a gift. And so when we sing and as we worship, let's just not become complacent. Let's not become content with doing things as usual. But let's really sing to the Savior that has bought us to be his own. Amen? Amen. That was free. That wasn't on the script. Um, Just felt, yeah, led to say that because um, it's a privilege to worship and to sing and gather as a family. And so um, today we are going to be, again, taking a look in Proverbs. Um, So I ask that all of you would stand with me for the reading of his word. We're going to be taking a closer look at what it means to be a friend. What it means to be a friend. Last week, just to give a little backdrop, we discussed or we took a look at Proverbs 17, 17, which just says a friend is one that loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Really, the only takeaway that I wanted to leave with us or I feel like the Bible leaves with us is that what it means to be a true friend is to commit or to have an ongoing commitment to love someone over time. Today, however, we're going to be looking at another aspect of friendship, and uh, we'll dive into that in a little bit, but let's, let's read God's word. Proverbs 27, 5, and 6. Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6, and it says this. Better an open reprimand than concealed love. The wounds of a friend are trustworthy, but the kisses of an enemy are excessive. Would you join me as we pray? Father, we ask for help. Oftentimes, we're not even aware of the cold and callous state of our own hearts, Lord, and so that when we stand here and we hear about you and we sing songs about you, we remain virtually unmoved. Father, we need you to warm up our hearts this morning. We need, the, uh, we need you to recalibrate them so that they would cry out and sing out with loudness and gladness for the, the, the fact that we know you as our Father. Father, you've been a better friend to us than we have been to you. And so as we learn about friendship today, I pray that it would reinvigorate us, Lord, to worship you for all of the ways that you've been so kind to us. Father, I pray that it would, it would deepen our appreciation and our, uh, 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 our, uh, that we would have greater value for the gift of friends that you've placed in all of our lives, Lord. Father, I pray that even for those who may find themselves in this room today friendless, Father, would we be able to point to the one, the only one that can be a perfect and true friend for us, your son, Jesus Christ. Father, would there be hope 
found in the pages of your word, that we would trust not in our own understanding, but that we would be able to trust in your wisdom as being the very best thing for our lives. We thank you for what you're doing. We pray that you would move through your word and through your spirit in our hearts so that we would not leave here the same. Those who don't know you yet, we pray that Jesus would be lifted up and placed plainly before them and that the invitation that he extends right here and right now would be something that they view as worth trusting in. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys may have your seats. There were these two friends named Andrew and John. They had been friends since elementary school, and they grew up and spent most of their life doing pretty much everything together. And so one year they decided, hey, how about we go and take a trip to Atlanta for Thanksgiving break? They wanted to kind of get a feel of the city and take a tour over all of the, um, all, all of the, all of the main major landmarks. They wanted to go to the aquarium and to the Civil Rights Museum. They wanted to enjoy the finest of cuisine. And so they decide to book a trip for about seven days, and upon arriving and upon uh, um, them experiencing all that Atlanta has to offer, they found themselves at the end of the trip. And so as they were planning to depart this trip, this great experience together, they made their way to the martyr station. And it was at the martyr station that they made their way up to the platform and deck waiting on their train. And what seemed unfamiliar to them or seemed as though something was off, they noticed in the distance a bag sitting on the platform. Well, Andrew was more of your, you could say he was your ratchet friend. He was the one a little bit more edgy, always trying to push the limits, but John was more of the upright guy. He was kind of what you would call the goody two-shoes. He was a rule follower. And so as Andrew sees the bag, he slowly walks up on it, seeing if anybody else notices it. He sees the bag and he reaches down and opens it only to find a bag full of cash and jewelry. So Andrew quickly closes it up for himself and he says, starts looking around and he waves John over like, John, come check this out, bro. Look at all this money. To which John replies and says, hey man, I, that bag might belong to somebody. How about we ask around and just see whose, this bag, is, whose bag this really is? And so Andrew kind of gives him that side eye like, bro, what are, you, what are you talking about? We're in Atlanta, bro. If we go up to anybody and ask them, hey, is this your bag? You know they're going to say it is. So he says, well, okay, okay. Well, if you don't want to find the rightful owner of this bag, then how about we split it half? How about you take half of it and I take half of it? How does that sound? To which Andrew's like, nah, bro, I found this bag first. I don't want to split it half. This bag is mine. So the two, just to kind of spare the awkwardness of um, the, the conflict that was seem, seemingly brewing, they decide to get on their train and head to the airport. Well, after some time, stop after stop, eventually they come about one stop before they're supposed to get off. And Andrew, out of the corner of his eye, notices that there's some police officers moving towards the train. So he doesn't really know what's going on, but... He knows that they're getting closer and closer and closer. So he leans over to John and says, hey, bro, um, man, there's some cops coming to this train. I don't know what's what's about to go down, but if they're looking for this bag, man, we're going to be in trouble. He says, man, what happens if they find 
this bag on me. Man, it's not going to be good for us. What are we going to do? To which John looks over like, we? Wait a minute, wait a minute. We didn't find this bag. You found this bag, remember? We didn't have really anything to do with it. When I actually, when I asked you, or when I told you that you should find the rightful owner, you said, no, nah, that's not a good idea. I want the bag for myself. When I told you that, man, maybe we can split it between the two of us, you said, nah, I don't think that's a good idea, bro. I think since I found it, I'm going to keep it for myself. But for some strange reason, now that the cops are here, you want to share with me, right? You want to share your problems with me, bro. You're a funny guy. Nah, bro. The bag is yours. It's not mine. The cops begin to move closer, eventually seeing how nervous Andrew was. And so they ask him, sir, can we check your belongings? As they check, they find the jewelry and cash that have been stolen, and they end up arresting him and sending him to jail. It was at that moment that Andrew, in his jail cell, began to regret not listening to his friend's advice. The moral to that story is that oftentimes friends are placed in our lives to protect us from ourselves. It was too quiet, so let me say it again. Oftentimes, friends are placed in our lives to protect us from ourselves. You see, if we have a sober view of ourselves, then we know that we are merely but sheep, and sheep are prone to wander. There are things and dynamics about us individually that cause us or lead us to find ourselves in positions where we need somebody from the outside looking in to speak into our lives, to protect us from the harm that we can't see for ourselves. You see, there's tremendous value to be found in having a friend who's willing to have a hard conversation with you even when it hurts. But there's equal value of being the friend who is willing to listen to, the, to listen to their friend's advice because there's a mutual trust and appreciation for the relationship. Today, if I were to summarize the text, the primary takeaway for those taking notes, I would say that true friendship will require us to put the needs of our friends before our need for the relationship or the friendship itself. That true friendship will require us to put the needs of our friends before our need for the friendship itself. I really only have two points for us today, and the first one is that friendship requires honesty. Friendship requires honesty. Look with me in the text as it says um, in verse 5. Solomon begins the text with this idea for us to kind of digest and understand as it relates to real love. As he says, better is open reprimand than concealed love. I like how other translations put it because they say better is open rebuke than hidden love. In order to understand this better, I think we could go as far as to invert that a little bit to say that hidden love is far worse than open rebuke. The question that we all have to wrestle with today is what is it that we really believe about love? What is our understanding of what it means to love somebody and to be loved by somebody? Here's a couple questions for us to just kind of 
see where we land as it relates to how we think about this. The first one being, do you connect truly loving someone with the absence or the avoidance of conflict or anything that would somehow lead to the separation in the relationship? Or is it wiser in your own eyes that when you see character flaws in a friend, when you see patterns of sin in their lives, that it's wiser to you just to stand by and to remain quiet? Just let it all play out. It'll work out in the end. Do you have this mindset of, my name ain't Bennett, so I ain't in it. It's not my business. Who am I to tell them anything about their own life? I have enough problems of myself. If you would affirm that you fall in line with any of those two, any of those ways of thinking, brothers and sisters, I want to urge you this morning to say that our understanding of love is wrong entirely. Solomon wants to recalibrate our minds to see things the way that God sees things and not what's natural to us. And so he says, better is open rebuke than concealed love, pointing to there's an artificial type of love out there. There's an imposter of sorts that masquerades itself into making us think that what we're doing is really loving when in all actuality it isn't. It's the complete opposite. This is a love that hides in the shadows. It's a love that's around, but you really can't ever get a real glimpse of it. The object of this love is self. It's selfish, not selfless. It's self-taking, not self-giving. It seeks to protect its own interests rather than consider the interests of anyone else. Solomon wants us to be able to recognize that the imposter of real love is concealed love. It's a hidden love. It's a love that will make every effort to avoid rebuke in order to maintain peace in the relationship. I love as Charles Spurgeon puts it like this. He says, the secret love that will not risk a faithful wound and spares rebuke rather than inflict pain, judged by God's standard, is hatred. Last week, Proverbs 17, a friend loves at all times. A friend loves at all times. What this verse is going to nudge us towards is to say, well, if a friend is to love at all times, then that means that part of me being a true friend means that I've got to be honest at all times. I've got to be willing to say the hard things because there's something more at stake than my own personal comfort. You know, what's hard about texts like this is that a lot of us, we enjoy artificial love. We enjoy the imposter. It's safer to us. There's really no threat to it. We can spend years in relationship with somebody we would call our best friend. And there's not one instance where we had to sit them down or they had to sit us down. And to actually challenge us in the way that we were living our lives. 
it's easy for us to live lives comfortable with the reality of they're just going to always be the way they are. And I think because we think when we hear the word rebuke, we often associate it with not loving, but unloving. Rebuke for us is something that we reserve for Satan. It's something that growing up, my mom's favorite tagline was be anything bad that happened. It was, I rebuke you, Satan, in the name of Jesus. And sometimes it made sense. But then other times it was like, Mom, you burnt the eggs. Not Satan. All you had to do was put the timer on. Satan didn't have nothing to do with that right there. Rebuke is often associated with harshness, coldness. Like I said before, it being unloving, not loving. Rebuke often triggers these memories of this past or even current trauma in our lives. We may recall memories of mom and dad who used their words to tear us down. Mothers and fathers who constantly were telling us what to do. There was no sense of gentleness and care and concern. It was performed to my liking or else. It may trigger memories of childhood friends that allowed us to be in their circle, but yet all they did was clown us. All they did was try to make us feel lower and beneath them in order to make themselves feel good. And yet we still called called them our friends because we liked to be associated with somebody. You may think of a spouse who may have used rebuke as a form of manipulation to try to get you to do what they wanted to do. Or even manipulate them to try to get something from you that they felt they needed so badly. Rebuke has left many of us in this room hurt very deeply. Wounds that still linger in our lives that we really can't put the finger on. But the moment we sense the most smallest inkling of something that reminds us of that, we put our defenses up. We want nothing to do with it entirely. I want to challenge us and I want to encourage us and I think God's word is going to point us towards this is that rebuke in God's eyes is something necessary not only to protect us, but to help us grow. Rebuke is something necessary in all of our lives, not only to protect us, but to help us grow. So let's first define it. What what does rebuke mean? In the Hebrew, it simply means correction through words correction through words. It involves us giving instruction to someone to help them see clearly where it is they're heading. It's the act of bringing up God's word to the forefront of our minds. All of us know that we're prone to suppress God's truth. We're prone at times to ignore God's truth. We're prone at times to convince ourselves of lies about what we think God wants from us, though it completely denies That in God's word. Rebuke from a friend is saying, how can I bring before your eyes what God wants from you? And hold it there and allow you to see the disconnect between how you're living and what God's word has to say. And then a a loving rebuke will bridge the gap. It'll bring them closer together over time through prayer and consistency to help us 
actually apply the word that we say we love so dearly. That's rebuke. Don't associate what God is talking about here with harshness, with coldness, with just telling people how it is. That's not what the Bible defines as rebuke. That's not what we're calling, we're called to as God's people. Rebuke can be gentle and yet firm. It can caress you while at the same time prop you up and help you stand to your feet. That is what God is calling us to. So how do we do that? If God is saying better is open rebuke than hidden love, how are we to do it? I got five practical steps that we all can take. Five practical steps. The first one is pray. Pray for yourself and the other person. Conflict in relationships is unavoidable. It's unavoidable. You're going to get to a point where somebody offends you, where somebody gets on your nerves, and you have, a, you have two options. One, you can ignore it. I don't want nothing to do with that person. I'm just going to act like it didn't happen. Or two, you can confront it. Those are the only two, those are the only two choices we have. Ignore or confront. God's called us to confront those issues. The way we do it is ne- don't ever enter into a hard conversation with somebody without first praying for yourself and then praying for them. We need to be reminded that our interactions with one another are spiritual things. It's not physical. Ephesians 6.12 says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against... This is a spiritual matter. When you enter into conflict with your brother and sister, when you are calling them to align their lives and their mentality with the word of God, you've entered into spiritual territory. You cannot change anybody's heart. Your words alone will change nobody. You need God to intervene and to use what it is that he already says in his word to help a brother or sister see the error in their ways. The first thing you must do is pray. The second thing is get all the facts. Start a conversation by asking a lot of questions. You don't know what you think you know. And you'll only find out if you ask. Ask questions about what you, what's really going on in that person's heart. Don't allow simple actions alone to cause you to draw conclusions about somebody and what they did without first them giving, a ch- giving them a chance to explain. Proverbs 18.2 says this, it says, A fool finds no delight in understanding, but only wants to show off his own opinions. Your job is not to police people's lives. Your job is to carefully remind them of what God has called for them. And a lot of times when you enter into a conflict, what kills relationships are assumptions. Thinking you know more than what you actually know. And, autumn, and placing people on trial without their due process. Get all the facts. Thirdly, be direct. This is more of an art than a science. If you think about your own life, every single person responds to conflict differently. Every single person has a different approach that they would like to hear hard information. You've got to be able to have friends that know you well enough that can be honest with you, but can package it in such a way to where you're receptive to it. And the reality is that if you're really going to have deep friendships, your friends are going to mess up. 
they're going to make mistakes. And we as God's people have to be willing to allow our friends to make a mistake and not hold their improper or wrong attempt against them and somehow ignore the truth behind what it is they're trying to communicate. There's nothing worse than having a hard conversation and someone beating around the bush. You already know that text message that you got last night about, hey, can we talk? You already know that it's a conversation of seriousness and not, hey, let's just talk about the calves tonight. Encourage one another to be honest and get to the point. But that may include some type of affirmation beforehand. The main thing is be direct. Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, put away lying and speak truth each to one's neighbor, because we are members of one another. God has called us to speak truth, to be honest, and not lie to one another. The fourth thing is teach the word. Anytime that you're going to confront somebody, you're going to enter into a need to rebuke, nobody cares about your opinions. Your opinions aren't going to be helpful. God's word is the only thing that will change a person's life, that will help them to think in a way that will honor God. So your responsibility is to instruct, correct, but to teach God's word. If you don't know where in God's word it says that this is wrong, find it first before you open your mouth. 2 Timothy 3.16 says God's word is only profitable for rebuke when we actually use it. And fifth, be willing to forgive. Once the sin is addressed, you know, sometimes it's so hard for people to, for us to rebuke others or even to be rebuked because we feel there's a fragility to the relationship that's going to come about. We're unwilling to forgive or even to ask for forgiveness. There's nothing sadder that within the church, difficult conversations where somebody says to you, brother and sister, your life is not lining up to the gospel or the faith of which you proclaim. And in an instant's time, that person cuts you out of their life completely. If people are going to have the courage to come to us and confront us, then we also inwardly need to be willing to say, I'm going to forgive you even when you do this poorly. Even when you mess up, I'm going to be willing to extend forgiveness. And I'm going to ask for that forgiveness to be given in return. Luke 17, 3, 4 says this best. He says, be on your guard. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The word of God doesn't give a time limit. The word of God doesn't give a meter mark as to how many times we're to forgive our brother or sister. Are you known to extend that type of forgiveness to others? Or do you have a short wick of, man, I'm tired of forgiving you for the same old things. I'm done. Let us be a people willing to forgive because we have been forgiven of much. So I know that we don't 
Most of us won't remember these five things when we're in the heat of the conflict. So let me give you a word picture. When you approach rebuke, think of it like this. Have you ever bought a soda, a bottle of soda, and left it in your car for some time? And it's just been sitting sitting in the heat and been shaking around and all kinds of stuff. And then once you arrive home, you're like, man, I'm thirsty. And you see that Coke bottle, and you're like, man, I'm ready to drink it. Now, what you don't do is go to that Coke bottle that's been shaken up and just open it up real quick. Why? It's going to shake all over the place and make a mess, right? The way that you get the contents that you are hoping to enjoy out of that bottle is you're going to slowly twist the lid. And then twist it some more. And you keep doing that until all of the carbonation that would lead to it making a mess all over the place and spilling out is completely removed from the equation so that you can enjoy that. I don't even really like Coke, but let's say A&W. So you can enjoy that root beer over a glass of ice. We should approach rebuke like that. We should look for every effort to avoid unnecessary offense. It should be a slow and gentle and subtle I've got to deal with this in order to enjoy the fruits that are within the relationship, but I've got to deal with it head on. But let me gradually ease it with affirmation and with prayer and with loving concern so, the, so that at the end of the day, you may be offended, but at least you know I care about you. At least you know I love you. But not only does friendship require us to be honest with one another. But friendship can be painful and yet worth it. Friendship can be painful and yet worth it. He says this, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. About a month ago, I went to this barber shop down the street, and uh, I was sitting in a chair, and, you know, if you go to a barber shop, you're used to people coming in with their head looking a little funny, right? Well, this kid walks in, and it wasn't that his line was outgrown. It wasn't that, you know, his hair had gotten a little bit long. The brother looked like somebody took a weed whacker to his head. Half his head was three inches long. The other half was about an inch long. One part was patchy and bald. And you just had to ask yourself, brother, what happened? <laughs> so he's sitting in the chair and the barber is just like, hey, bro, like, what can I get for you? What do you want? What do you want? And so he points to this photo of this dude with this crisp high top fade. And he's like, man, I want that. So the barber's like kind of pulling at his hair like, bro, like I don't I can't get that for you, bro. Like your head is jacked up right now. And so he's trying to say, hey, what happened? He's like, no, nah, I just woke up like this. And he's like, what, what do you mean you just woke up like this? And so finally he's like, well, you know, I think my sister may have just got the scissors and she may have cut my hair at night. And I just woke up and it was looking like this. And so. You know, I'm in the chair and I'm just kind of being nosy and just kind of listening to like, bro, really? Like, it really seemed like you tried to cut your own hair and you messed up. And then you decided, man, I've got to have a barber hook me up. So he tells the barber who asked him again, man, bro, are you sure you want me to do this? Where he says, man, you're the professional, just fix it. So the barber cuts his hair and he, you know, gives him a little taper on the back and, um, the brother, if you're familiar with the show back in the day, Gumby, where you've got a, a flat top, but it's kind of like a, a triangle on the side. Well, that's what he had. 
And so you would think that the barber would have been like, hey, bro, I can't let you walk out my shop like this. Let me cut it all off. But no, the barber just takes his $25, lets the brother walk out of the shop. And the moment that door closes, everybody in the shop erupts. It's like, bro, like, why would you do that to that man? Well, what really would have happened if that barber had just been honest with him? What really would it cost him if the barber was like, hey, bro, I'm not going to do you like that. I'm unwilling to cut your hair. I know you're going to be disappointed because he was the best barber in the shop. But, bro, I can't let you go down like this. He may have lost $25. He may have lost the customer. But I guarantee you that those that were around him would have probably had way more respect for him than those that saw him take his money and leave the brother out to hang. I want to tackle this misconception that we have about conflict. Because I think that we think that if we say hard things to our friends, that means that we're automatically going to lose that friend. I think that we somehow believe that it's easier to avoid difficult conversations because we think that that's the best way to preserve the relationship, to ignore offense, not address it, to not take a inspectful and healthy look at one another and to say, man, my job is to watch and care for you. The Bible actually says something completely different. Solomon implies that honesty is not only an essential ingredient for an authentic friendship, but it doesn't have to lead to the severing of a friendship. It actually can cement one. It actually can be the very thing that takes two people who weren't friends and now make them friends because there's an appreciation and a value that comes with somebody who's willing to say the hard things to you and then walk with you to help you grow and to help you endure whatever burden may come from that interaction. I've seen this play out in my own life. Whereas, you know, you have those friends. There was a, there was a season of our life where every time me and my wife would get in an argument, we'd get a phone call. We'd be talking and beefing and wouldn't be able to really go anywhere. And then next thing we know, there's a knock on our door. And it was the same person every single time. And there were times where we'd look out the mirror and be like, nah, we ain't opening that door today. Nah, not today. But I think the beauty of what transpired from that is to have friends that know you well enough that can enter into your life and can identify your current need in that moment. It wasn't about trying to make us feel good about ourselves. It wasn't about trying to help us to ignore the problem that exists. It was being willing to insert herself into the equation and tell us the hard things that we needed to hear at that moment. Friends like that are going to be the very ones that help your marriage endure until the end. Friends like that are going to be the very ones that help you remain faithful to Jesus Christ. If you're prone to wonder, then that means that we all need people in our lives that will be willing to tell us when we're in the wrong. You may find yourself in this place right now where you're like, I don't have a friend like that. I don't have people willing to not just say hard things to me, but even encourage me to be faithful to Jesus. 
if you're a person that thinks that you don't need that, I want to ask you, how has that been going for you? How is living that way where all of your friends remain surfacy? All you talk about over and over and over again are the game or the weather or what you ate for dinner or what you've posted on your Instagram page. How has that helped you in your walk in relationship with Christ? Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Too often we call enemies friends and friends enemies. Too often we do a poor job of really being able to evaluate and distinguish between the person who's really being my friend and loving me even when it's hard and the person who just flatters me with things that make me feel good for the moment but really don't help me at all. I think my charge for us church is to realize that to have a sober view of yourself means that you understand completely that you're never okay. You're never okay. You're but one bad decision away from ruining your life. You may not agree with that. You may not think that's the case. But most people who commit gross sins probably thought that very same thing. They probably thought I was stronger than I actually was. And the common denominator is typically they isolated themselves. They didn't want anybody to know them. They didn't want anybody to get too close. They didn't want anybody or didn't believe that there was anybody who could see their mess and yet still love them. And so they find themselves in the darkest seasons of their life and they're all alone. Pride stands in the way of intimacy with God, but it also stands in the way of intimacy with one another. We must acknowledge our desperate need for help. And God's provision for us is that he gives us friends. Friends who be willing to enter into our hardship and into our worst of the worst situations and speak life and truth in order to help restore us. You can be known and fully loved. Notice I didn't say perfectly loved. You can be known and fully loved by somebody and their love be imperfect. They're going to mess up. They're not going to understand you fully. They're not going to be able to handle every situation properly. But there's a commitment there. So here's the challenge for us. Far too often, um, what you'll find in churches is that typically truth tellers are usually ostracized. They're usually the ones that people try, try to avoid because they're the ones who always seem to bring the party down. They're the ones who always are going to have something to say. They're far too spiritual for all the common folk. If you've been in church long enough, you'll find that usually the fun goers are the ones that people always want to come alongside. And the people who really... Um, can sometimes be loose with their tongue or say hard things, aren't invited into the mix. I want to ask, what's the root of that? 
What's the what's underneath all of that? Could it be a lack of desire to really want to grow in your relationship with Christ? Could it be a lack of desire to really want to be challenged and want others who may not have that same relational capital with you to somehow speak and challenge you in any way? Here's the danger with long-term friendships. When you have a long-term friend, it's easy to become comfortable with them. It's easy to look at them and say, man, you've known me so long that, man, the things that I see in your life, man, I'm tired of talking about them. I'm tired of bringing them up to you. And so you just subtly and so easily just avoid them. I want to encourage you to say, one of the ways that we can love one another, one of the ways that we can love our long-term friends and those that we haven't known as long, is to let's take, let's take away the awkwardness of who's going to initiate. What would it look like if you decided to ask your close friend, hey, brother, sister, I trust you. What are some ways that you think I can grow in my relationship with the Lord? What are some things in my life that you would consider blind spots to me? Things that you may have said for so many years, but it seems as though I haven't been listening. What are those things, and would you tell them for me? Tell them to me again. That's a hard conversation to have, because most of your friends have a lot of ammunition on you. And you've got a lot of ammunition on them. But the beauty is, is that all hearts take a posture of, through works, starting to evidence this faith that we claim to have and saying, Jesus, I want that. I want to be more like you than I care about the temporary pain that will come in this conversation. This is going to be hard to hear. However, we believe in a God who doesn't just expose us to hurt us or to harm us, but he exposes us to heal us. And the evidence of our love and our relationships with one another is seen. The beauty of what makes the church the church is now that we have an environment where people aren't looking to others for their acceptance, for their validation, for their affirmation, but they've got that in Christ. And now we can interact with one another with the freedom to say, even if you get angry at me, even if you hurt me, God still loves me. God is still going to be there for me. Even if this relationship ends today, I'm grateful that I've got a friend in heaven. So the beauty now, the beauty now is seen in, I can offend you and I don't have to lose the, lose the relationship. Not intentionally, but I can say hard things to you. And now we can commit to one another. And we may need to have a series of follow-up conversations but the Christian, the Christian is the one who has seen a God who has been relentless in, relentless in pursuing them, even though we offend him greatly. The beauty of knowing Jesus is that we'll never have to forgive one another as much as Christ has had to forgive us. And if we've been forgiven of much, who are we to withhold forgiveness to one another? David says this about the, his desire in Psalm 141.5, his desire for this type of rebuke, his desire to see pain that would lead into greater intimacy with God. He says this, let the righteous one strike me, 
It is an act of faithful love. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let me not refuse it. Your maturity, your Christian maturity in a lot of ways is going to be seen in how you obey and how you view and respond to this very thing. Pride puffs up. Humility would say, brother, I didn't have an expectation for myself that I would not sin. I didn't have an expectation for myself that in this friendship we would not offend one another because we both are sinners. We both are going to do things that could divide and disrupt the relationship and yet we both can come face to face and we can stand there and we can deal with the problem and not the person. We can address the issue and not have a fear that you're going to abandon me or I'm going to abandon you. couple applications for us. Just a couple questions. Who do you currently have in your life that is honest with you in this way? Who do you currently have in your life that's honest with you about your sin? And who are you that person for? If you can't think of anybody right now, I think the best place to start is with your immediate circle. The people that you would say, this is my crew, this is my squad, these people have known me, I know that they love me. Start there and see if you have those that will have difficult conversations with you. And then commit to saying, I want to be the type of friend that is that for those people. It's essential that we have friends that be willing to stand in the gap for us in the midst of our weakness, that will be willing to have hard and tough and difficult conversations because they feel a responsibility to watch after our souls, to watch and be concerned about the way that we live our lives, not to stand on the sidelines, not to think that somehow somebody else will do it, but to say, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be for you what God has been for me. All of us sitting in this room are here because Christ did that for us. Jesus is not like us in the sense that he would see our sin and our shame and that he would stand by and allow us to run off the cliff. Jesus would intervene and interject himself to illuminate the current state of our lives, the current state of our souls in telling us we're lost. We're sinners. We're, we've offended a holy and perfect God. But he wouldn't just stop there. Jesus would give us faithful wounds solely because he was wounded for our transgressions and our sins. He became and bore within himself all that we deserved and in return offers to all this free gift. This free gift that those that would place their trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and personal Savior, that they can be saved. Jesus is not one that wants to lie to you and act as though all is okay. He wants you to know, he wants us to know our current state and our desperate need, and then he actually wants to bring about a solution. Jesus was hung on that cross. He was killed on that cross, 
he was buried, and then three days later he rose from the grave, all so that you and I could know that there's a friend whose wounds are faithful, can be trusted. That there's no flattery that comes with relationship with Christ. No, he's going to let us know what the real is. But he's also going to step in and he's going to say, I'm going to be what you could never be. I'm going to live the life that you could never live. And all that you have to do is receive me. Receive me for who I am and what I've offered to you. And if you do that, then I promise that I promise that I will, at the end of the day, I will complete the work that I've started in your life. That it will come with wounds, but it will come with healing so that one day you will look at me face to face and I can see my reflection. That's the promise of the Christian life. That's what Christ has to offer all those who would come and surrender. You don't have to be pretend anymore. You don't have to act like you've got everything together. You can be free and exposed and know that Christ has an unconditional love to offer you.